I really want to carry on with what Toby started last week. If you didn't hear his talk, please listen to it online. It gives a very helpful steer on what we feel is God's plan for the Kingdom Vineyard in this next season, and I commend it to you. In a sense, what I want to say this morning is a reflection on what he said last week, on how what he was talking about might look to us on the ground as we play our part in affecting this ministry of reconciliation between God and pre-believers. When I was 10 years old, my family was living in Warsaw in Poland, and my parents decided to buy a second-hand upright piano from some people who were moving on. They thought I could learn to play it. They hired a young woman to teach me, and away we went. This young woman, Barbara, her name was, was really cool. Remember, this was 1968, so she had the long, drippy hair, you know, fringe, lots of black eyeliner, trendy clothes, and so on, and I wanted to be just like her. She was an excellent pianist, and I wanted to be an excellent pianist, just like her. I realize now, though, that excellent pianist though she was, she wasn't a teacher. The first thing she asked me was what piece I'd like to start on. Blank. I didn't know any pieces. So she chose the Minuet in G by Beethoven for me. This is a relatively simple piece, but not for the complete beginner. I got very grumpy very quickly. Because when she played it, it sounded lovely, and when I played it, it didn't. And the whole painful, very painful for Barbara process ground on for a few months before Barbara left to take up a posting in another country. Actually, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm sure. Anything to get away from teaching a sulky and sadly rather talentless child. At the time, my beloved father made a comment which I deeply resented then, but which, with hindsight, was entirely fair and perceptive. The trouble with you, darling, he said, is that you want to be a concert pianist without putting in the work it takes to get there. In other words, I wanted the process of learning how to play the piano to be unnecessary. I wanted instant success. I think wanting the end result without going through the process is a common human weakness. Many of us would love to excel at something and especially to enjoy the benefits that accrue from that excellence, but we would prefer to bypass the hard graft. Andy Murray without the ice baths and the agony. What I'd like to do this morning is to look a little more closely at why process is important for the Ministry of Reconciliation, which God has entrusted to us. Let's remind ourselves firstly of those verses at the end of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There are some processes processes we take absolutely for granted, and the process of life is one of them. Nobody looks at a newborn baby and thinks, job done, you've been born, and now you're on your own, baby, be blessed. Nobody expects a child who is learning how to wield a pencil to produce war and peace as his first piece of creative writing. The whole idea is just ridiculous. He goes to school and learns first to form letters, then sentences, then stories, and so on. And even then, frankly, he's unlikely to produce war and peace. Let's face it. Growing up is a process. Growing as a Christian is also a process. None of us is exempt from that process, just as none of us is exempt from the lengthy and often messy process of growing up. Last week, Toby reminded us that as a church, we're essentially a fishing boat, not a pleasure cruiser. Part of our job as a church is to effect an introduction to Jesus for those who have not yet met him, which is another way of saying we are called to be fishers of men and women. Is that how we see church? John Wimber used to say that you have to get the fish in the boat before you clean them. If I were on a pleasure cruiser, I would be distinctly unimpressed to see somebody gutting fish beside the swimming pool. So we do need to be clear in our own minds as to what church is. Are we on the boat to be ferried from one beauty spot to another while we sip cocktails and top up our tans, or are we one of the crew doing what needs to be done? If, as verse 18 states, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, If, as verse 19 says, he has committed the message of reconciliation to us, and if, as verse 20 states, we are Christ's ambassadors and he is making his appeal to a broken world through us, we need to be quite clear about this. The process of reconciliation is ongoing and continuous, not only through us, but also in us. There are two processes going on here the process of reconciling a fallen world to God, and the process of being trained, disciplined, and honed in order to make us better able to do the job well. The Bible's full of instructions as to how to achieve this, so I want to look at one passage in particular, Romans 12, verses 1 to 21, and I'm reading from the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. 
If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Sorry, that always makes me laugh. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be nice to you so that you burn. I mean, obviously, obviously we know, don't we, that, that that means that they will be surprised by your generosity in the face of their meanness. That's what that means, but it amuses me. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a mandate, surely, to spend time looking at ourselves questioning our own long-held assumptions and challenging our inevitable prejudices. Some Christians are very skeptical about the benefit of doing any such thing. Let me quote from a Christian psychologist called Simon Park, who wrote this in a book book I'm reading currently. The pursuit of self-knowledge has many detractors. I can still hear the woman who had worked with the starving. She was very angry. Self-knowledge, she muttered. The starving don't have time for self-knowledge. What's important to them is that they're fed. Park then goes on to talk about the religious man whose line is, why waste time talking about ourselves when we should be talking about God? Something I'm sure many of us have heard before and even thought. And of course, the religious man has a point. As Christians, we are called first and foremost to know God. Abraham Heschel, one of the leading Jewish theologians of the 20th century, wrote, Know thy God, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. Know thy God rather than know thyself is the categorical imperative of the biblical man. There is no self-understanding without God-understanding. Some of us love the search for self-knowledge, and some of us think it is unadulterated navel-gazing. We must remember the context of and the reason for pursuing this self-knowledge. It is always with a view to serving God more effectively, to being ambassadors for him, worthy to represent him to a lost world. 
It is to learn to look at ourselves with the eye of sober judgment so that we can come as we are, but not stay as we are. It is realizing that the expression, that's just how I am, is not an acceptable explanation for being an abject pain in the neck. As Roman 12 makes clear, we are urged to renew our minds. Without a measure of self-knowledge, the next verse in this passage would not be possible. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. For some of us, the danger of thinking too highly of ourselves is non-existent. So low is our self-esteem. That's another issue altogether, and if it applies to you, then we would love to pray with you. It is not anywhere in God's plan that you should think of yourself in that way. For many of us, sober judgment means never, ever acknowledging that we might be good at something or have done something kind, because that's boasting, but always deflecting any praise or appreciation or gratitude. Here's a little aside to any of us who do that. Stop it. It's rude. If somebody thanks us for something we've done, let's learn to say, it's a pleasure, or it's fine, didn't take long, or something of that ilk. That little service we've performed at no great cost to ourselves and with no desire necessarily to be thanked for it has blessed someone, and they want to register their appreciation. So let's allow them that pleasure. Sober judgment means simply balanced Judgment. If we're balanced in our approach to ourselves and to others, we will acknowledge not only weaknesses, but strengths in ourselves as much as in others. Back at the passage, after establishing that we're all different but members of the same body nonetheless, a familiar image in the New Testament, verses 6 and 7 go on to emphasize the variety of gifts which we all bring to the mix. There are two points to emphasize here. The first, as I know I've said many times before, is that God loves variety. We do not have to all think the same way. We don't need to look the same. We don't have to like the same music. God does not struggle with variety. We do. We simultaneously want to conform and to be noticed. I have a postcard which is rather withered now, having been gathering dust on my pinboard for so long, and it says this, remember, you are unique, just like everybody else, which I think says all there is to say, really, about the human condition. The second point is that we don't just have one gift for all time, but different gifts at different times. I amused myself greatly yesterday while I was writing this at the thought that we could go through the list in Romans 12, not exhaustive by any means, and choose a gift (coughs) that would then let you off all the others. So sorry, can't serve today, I'm too busy being merciful. No, no, you don't understand, I'm a prophet, so you can't expect me to be generous as well. Okay, here's a quid. You may not think of yourself as having any sort of prophetic gift, but don't self-exclude Actually, it's not your call. It's God's. He is perfectly capable and also perfectly willing to use us in any way if we make ourselves available to him. Do we assume when we read this that being a leader means being a leader of a church? Why? Many of us head up teams at work which I, as a church leader, could never lead in a million years. I teach here, but I could no more stand up in a classroom of a primary school than learn to fly. Well, fly, rather. I probably could learn. 
bit late. We have different gifts because we lead different lives. And of course, many of these gifts seem to me to be the natural outcome of having been reconciled to God through Jesus. How, when we have been on the receiving end of God's overwhelming generosity, when he has given Jesus, who knew no sin, to die for us on the cross, burdened with our sin, how can we be anything other than generous with our time and our resources and ourselves? What does it cost us to encourage someone who's struggling? How, given the mercy which has been extended to us, can we possibly not extend mercy to others who have wronged us and hurt us? It might not be easy. It might be very difficult indeed, but we need to learn how to do it. We're not called on to do all of this all of the time. Sometimes we will need our co-workers in Christ to carry the can for a while. But I do think we can do all of this some of the time, and probably for more of the time than we think. We'll need that self-knowledge to discern when to let go and when to persevere. All of this, after all, is only possible at all by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that none can boast. The next section, verses 9 to 21, is a series of instructions, none of which, without God's grace, I would have much chance of carrying out, speaking personally. Most of all, I think these verses can serve as a useful thermometer with which to take our spiritual temperature, both as individuals as well as as a church. Let's ask ourselves, how am I doing? What do I do well? What do I find really hard? What do I skate over? These verses are a call to self-examination, to a growth in self-knowledge, and they also call for sober judgment. There are some which seem obvious. Of course you rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Why wouldn't you? But does that apply when we've just been made redundant and our best friend in the church has just landed her dream job? Can you rejoice with her? I think that's exactly what we're called to do. It's tougher for those who mourn, always. But one day, we believe those who mourn will rejoice. That's life. The poor as well as the rich are called to be generous and we are asked to love the unlovely as well as those who make it easy for us to love them. Some of these instructions, most of them, are very challenging. I'm not sure I know a great deal about persecution firsthand, for example, but I can't imagine I'd find blessing my persecutors very easy. Think of the horrendous torture of British troops at the hands of the Japanese in Burma during the Second World War. I have come across men who forgave that, but if they didn't, how can we possibly pass judgment? My parents had a friend who had been a Japanese prisoner of war, and as a 17-year-old, to my shame, I remember thinking that it was silly to hate the Japanese, because after all, the war had been over for 30 years, and he had a nice life now. It was ignorant, not willfully so, but ignorant nonetheless. Let's make sure to pray for those who struggle to forgive and to hold ourselves, most importantly, to our own rigorous standards. 
The last four verses from 17 to 21 are all about how we handle ourselves when we're wronged. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. It says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. I thought, really? I thought as Christians we should do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, after struggling with this for some time, I simply came to the conclusion that the translation just wasn't entirely clear. And I say this with all humility, humility who know nothing of such things. Matthew Henry, the great 16th century Bible commentator, explained these verses like this. Recompense to no man evil for evil. That is a brutish recompense befitting only animals which are not conscious of any being above them or of any existence hereafter. And not only do, but study and take care to do that which is amiable and creditable and recommends religion to all with whom you converse. In other words, we need to remember that we're ambassadors for Christ and that people will watch how we handle adversity both within the church and outside it. We may have been bad-mouthed, abused, or betrayed, but our response will be assessed, and accordingly, so too will Christ. The passage ends with an encouragement to let God fight our corner and to do what we can to extend kindness in the face of nastiness and generosity in the face of meanness. I love the way Eugene Patterson translates the final verse in the message. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Too often, I've heard people encourage those who have been hurt, offended, cruelly treated or betrayed by Christians to look not to the church with all her failings, but to Jesus himself. And they certainly won't go wrong if they do that, of course. But isn't it a bit of an indictment of us? There may be little we can do about it other than to apologize and ask forgiveness on the perpetrator's behalf. We're all members of the same body, remember? And to do all we can to ensure that the same accusation will never be leveled at us. But if we're the one on the receiving end of the hurt or the cruelty or the betrayal, we also have a job to do if we're a Christian. And it's a very tough one. Forgiveness is a very tough call for those of us who follow Jesus. But we can't dodge it. It is not an option. It is a requirement and one which, we accept, which when we accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, we signed up for. And herein lies another talk. I think that many of the difficulties we experience in our walk with God come as a result of attempting consciously or unconsciously to avoid the process of being perfected of being refined and honed, of making mistakes and learning from them, of failing and learning from that. It's too painful and shaming and embarrassing. So we need to remind ourselves again what all this self-knowledge and refining and lifetime learning and realizing we'll never have it all straight is for. It is so that we can be better and better ambassadors for Christ or, if you prefer, representatives of Christ as much to one another within the church as to people who are yet to be reconciled to God. So here's a final thought. Why don't we learn to view our mistakes 
and failings as a gift to others, one which gives them the opportunity to grow in grace and mercy. We will need to remember, though, that other people will extend exactly the same gift to us. So we need to be prepared to give what we long to receive, the same generosity, the same grace, the same mercy. Shall we stand?